Grace, mercy, and peace to you be from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. There's one thing that I really admire, and that's persistence. Like, this is something we really, as a society, admire, someone who is persistent, that they fail and they get right up again and try again. That they don't give up. They're unrelenting. They're like a bulldog. They just won't let go. I think of someone who's persistent. I think of someone like Thomas Edison. Thomas Edison went through thousands of experiments before he found a commercially viable light bulb. Thousands of times it didn't work, and he decided, you know what, I'm going to try again. A reporter once asked him, what does it feel like to fail a thousand times? He said, I didn't fail a thousand times. Inventing a light bulb takes a thousand steps. In fact, I found a thousand ways, I successfully found a thousand ways not to make a light bulb. Or I think about someone like uh, uh, Daniel Rudy Rudiger from the movie Rudy, but it's a true story. A man who wanted to play college football at Notre Dame so badly, even though he was five foot six, not especially strong, and not especially skilled. And yet, through sheer dogged determination, he got into the practice squad. And then, through even more persistence, he ended up getting to play in one game where he got to, in three plays, get one sack. This is the kind of thing we admire, a person who just doesn't give up. And this persistence is the common thread in our Old Testament reading from Genesis and our New Testament reading from Luke. That we see God wants his people to have that kind of faith, that kind of persistent faith. And I want to clarify real quick, I'm not talking about saving faith. Saving faith, the faith that saves you, can be tiny, as small as a mustard seed. But God doesn't want us to just have a tiny faith. He wants us to grow, to have that dogged, persistent faith, a faith that can stand up to any difficulty and be completely convinced of the promises of God. Which brings me to Abraham. Abraham is a story of a man learning from God how to have a persistent faith. You see, God starts with a promise. A big promise, an audacious promise, a crazy promise. He says, Abraham, I know you're 75 years old. Your wife is 65 years old. You've never been able to have children. I promise you a son. Now, I know a little bit about biology, and that is a really, really tiny, tiny, tiny chance that you'd ever be able to have a child. So you're saying there's a chance, right? No matter how tiny that chance is, Abraham trusts this God. He says, you're going to have a son. But God doesn't stop there. He makes more, even crazier, more audacious promises. He says, your son will be the first of many. That you're going to have so many offspring, they'll be like the stars in the sky or the sands on the seashore. He says, from your offspring will come a great nation. They'll inherit the land of Canaan. This is kings will come from your offspring. And the biggest of them all, he says, from your offspring, I will bless all the families of the earth. These are crazy promises. And Abraham trusts God. He trusts God and follows him. But God doesn't want him just to trust him immediately. He wants this real, persistent, lasting trust. So he makes Abraham wait and wait. Years pass, and God still has not given him a single child. And yet God keeps coming back to him and reminding him of the promise, renewing the promise, even expanding the promise. That God promises from your own body and your wife's own body will come a son that all of these blessings will flow through your offspring. 
By the time we get to our text today, 24 years has passed. 24 years Abraham has waited for this God to give him anything. Quick score here. At this point, Abraham has zero children by Sarah. He owns zero land. Zero kings have come from him. He has blessed only a few people. And yet Abraham is still holding on to that promise, though it's hard. Abraham's faith wobbles several times in the story. In fact, when God comes back to him and says, it's finally happening. One year from now I'll return and you will have the promised son born to you. Sarah laughs. Sarah laughs because at this point, this promise is getting silly. Abraham's 99. Sarah's 89. This is getting ridiculous. It's laughable. Yet God says, no, it's going to happen within the year. Within the year, Sarah will become pregnant. And as you see her baby bump grow, you'll know that I kept my promise. As the baby kicks, you will know I've kept my promise. When that child is born, you will hold God's promise in your arms. Finally, the promise is coming true. Finally, the persistence is paying off. And that's the setting for this conversation between God and Abraham. You see, God and Abraham have this conversation about the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, on the surface, this conversation sounds like God and Abraham are haggling. They're bargaining that God wants to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah for their many, many sins. And Abraham wants him to spare Sodom and Gomorrah because, well, Abraham's nephew lives there. And so they go back and forth. But it is wrong to read this as a negotiation. Because if it's a negotiation, first of all, both of them want the same thing. Both Abraham and God want the same thing. They want the righteous to be saved and the guilty to be punished. So really, they're not disagreeing on anything here. The other thing is, if this is a negotiation, God is bad at haggling. I mean, look at this. Uh, Abraham says, would you spare the city if there are 50 righteous people? And God says, yes. How about 45? Yes. How about 40? Yes. God says yes every single time. Right? I don't know too much about negotiating, but I know usually if Abraham says 50, God says, well, how about 100? And then they go eventually settle at 75, right? But no, God keeps saying yes, because this is not a negotiation. This is an opportunity for Abraham to show persistent faith. Because God has revealed to Abraham that he is a righteous God who does not destroy the righteous He's a merciful God who will have mercy on an entire city for the sake of just a few people. And if that's the case, then he should expect God to say yes. So really the question is, how far will Abraham go? How, how long can Abraham keep going with this? And he gets him down to 10, which is really impressive. Uh, God is giving Abraham this opportunity to flex his wings because God is teaching Abraham how to fly. God is giving this opportunity to to use that persistent faith that God has been growing in Abraham all these 24 years. That's what's going on here. And in the end, God succeeds. By the end, Abraham has this fully mature faith. We see when God gives him the final test, asks, would you give me your own son if I asked for him? Abraham says, yes, Lord. That here is a man who completely trusts his God. No matter what that God says, he knows that God is good, that God is righteous, that God is his father, and he will do well to listen to him. 
This is why Abraham is called the man of faith. He is the model for faith, a faith that doesn't give up, who doesn't uh, get scared by difficulty, who doesn't question God, but simply trusts that God is always good all the time. Which brings us to our New Testament lesson. Here, God wants the same thing for his disciples. He wants his followers to have the same sort of dogged, relentless, persistent faith that never gives up. In fact, that's actually what the parallel text later in Luke 18 says. He says he, he said this so they would always pray and never lose heart. He tells them a story. The story is about a man who needs a few loaves of bread. It's the middle of the night. He goes and knocks on his neighbor's door and says, Hey, neighbor, I need some bread. The neighbor says, Go away. He knocks some more. The neighbor says, I'm already in bed. The door's locked. Leave me alone. He knocks again. He just keeps doing this and doing this. Finally, the man gives him what he asked for. In Luke 18, there's a similar parable about a widow who needs a judge to hear her case. But the judge doesn't like her, doesn't like anyone, and won't listen. But she nags him and nags him and nags him until finally he's like, whatever, just take whatever you want, woman. Both of these parables are doing the same thing. This is an argument from lesser to greater. That if something's true in this little case, it must be even more true in this bigger case. The neighbor does not help him because he likes the guy. He helps him because he won't leave him alone. The judge doesn't help the woman because he's a righteous judge. He helps because she won't leave him alone. So he's saying if these people who don't want to help, help those who are persistent, how about a God who does want to help? Right? If these people who don't want to help will help the one who asks, then certainly a God who wants to help you will certainly listen when you ask. He's trying to instill in them that this persistence that you keep, keep at it because God wants to hear you. God wants to do well by you. And the reason for this is because God is our Father. That's the audacious thing Jesus says in the prayer he teaches them. Address God not as omnipotent Lord of the universe, but as Dad. And so by approaching God as Father, he's once again working from lesser to greater here. Because we know a few things about fathers. We all have fathers. Uh, I'm a father, and many of you are too. And fathers as broken and sinful as our human flesh is, want to do good by their children. Fathers want to do good by their children. And so when a child comes to their father, if the father is doing his job as father, he will honestly listen to what the child asks for and give a good answer. It may not always be the answer the child wants. I mean, to illustrate, you know, my daughter might come to me and say, I want a cookie. All right, I have, I have three options here. Option one is say, yes, of course. I'd love to give you a cookie. I'd love to bring you that joy. Option two is, yes, but not yet. You know, yes, but you need to wait until after supper. Or yes, you need to wait until uh, everyone else is here. The third option is no. But no is always handled very delicately because a loving father only says no with a purpose. The no might be no because you've already had a bunch of cookies and it would be unhealthy to have any more. The no might be no because we're going to have a big meal in a couple hours and I don't want you to lose your appetite. The no might even be no because I'm going to have ice cream instead. 
You'd be like, there's a better thing that I'm going to give you instead, so I'm not going to give you this lesser thing you asked for. And all of these are motivated by love. All those answers come out of love. The yes, the yes, but wait, and even the no. And so this is how it is to ask our God. Our God wants us to ask him, knowing that he's going to answer like a loving father. We can expect a loving father. So for instance, you might come to God because you are sick, because some sort of disease is troubling you. God might say, yes, I will heal you. And I can tell you stories about healings that I cannot explain, that God has heard prayer. He might say, yes, but wait. And then we feel like Abraham, those 24, 25 years he waited for God to keep his promise, doggedly coming back to God in prayer, waiting, waiting, but knowing that God still does this out of love and concern. In fact, doing it probably for the same reason as Abraham, to build perseverance in us, to build that uh, firm faith, that mature faith. Then there's God's no. You might come to God and say, please heal me, and he doesn't. And I can't explain why any particular case happens, but I do know one thing, and that is our God is a loving father. And so he does this out of love. Perhaps he says, no, you need to suffer through this because it will make you stronger. He said this to Paul. St. Paul said, God, take away this thorn in my flesh. And God said, no, my grace is enough for you. And my power is made perfect in weakness. He might even say, I have something better for you. He might ask God for healing. Instead, he says, no, instead, I'm going to give you rest. I'm going to bring you to your eternal home, which is much better than this one here. The time has come for your labors to end. And so we approach God knowing that he could answer any of these ways, but confident that he will answer in the right way the way that is good, righteous, merciful, the way a father in his absolute perfection would answer. It says, even if you fathers who are evil give your children good things, won't your heavenly father do even better? And so as we live this life of learning, this of life of growing, of gaining perseverance, God has given us a prayer to guide us. That's the Lord's Prayer. And the Lord's Prayer is an example of letting God's promises shape our prayer. This is how it should be. God's promises should shape our prayer, that we should hold on to the promises no matter what. And so we speak God's promises back to him. Not that he's forgotten them, that we have to remind him what the promises are. We speak God's promises back to him to show that I know this is who you are because you have revealed yourself to be this. And so I will approach you in this way. And so all of the phrases in the Lord's Prayer are based on the promises of God. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Here, God has revealed himself as loving Father, and we trust him in that way. People might tell us that God is distant, that God doesn't listen, that God isn't concerned, but we say, no, that's not the God who I know. That's not the God who's been shown to me in his promises. He is my Father. Continues, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Here God has promised that he is the Lord of history, that all things happen by his loving command. People might tell you that God 
is not involved, that history is a bunch of nations attacking nations and powerful people doing whatever they want. We say, no, God has revealed himself as being the Lord of all, and I trust his judgment. Prayer continues, uh, give us this day our daily bread. Here we're confessing that God is not just the creator of all things, but the sustainer of all things. That he is the one who gives everyone what they need. He opens his hand and satisfies the desires of every living thing. That he makes the rain fall on the righteous and on the wicked. And some may say that you don't have enough, that you need more in order to be comfortable, in order to survive. And you're saying, no, my God is my provider. I have what I need. The Lord is my shepherd. I will not want. And then the prayer continues, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Here the promise we are praying to God is a promise that he is a merciful God, a forgiving God, a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And it may feel like things you have done are so unforgivable that God can never take them away. But in this prayer, we are saying, no, God has promised that he will take our sins as far away as the east is from the west. And because God is God of forgiveness, we are people of forgiveness. That we are forgiving people because we live in a forgiving relationship with our God. And then the prayer concludes with, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Here we are confessing the promise of God that he is the one who rescues from temptation. And he is the one who overcomes all evil. That at the last day, all evil will be put to an end. And only righteousness will endure forever. And it may seem that this is impossible. There's so much badness in the world. So much evil in our society. So much evil in our hearts. But here we say, no, our God has Confess that he is the one who makes things right. And I believe that he will do that before all things are over. And so this is the rhythm of the Christian life, this rhythm of prayer, that we come to God with his promises. And even though our faith may be shaken, even though we may totter, holding fast, saying, no, this is who our God is, who he says he is. And through that, you will grow to have mature faith. I don't say this to you to say, hey, you need to go be more perseverant. You need to be more gritty. No, I'm saying to this because God is going to work this in your life. If you belong to him, he is going to make you a more mature Christian. He's going to make you stronger and more relentless in your faith. It's going to happen. And here now, I want you to be able to understand what's happening in your lives. As you experience the long wait like Abraham, as you experience the trials, if you even experience God's no, understand where this is all coming from, that God is not done with you yet, that he's forming you to be the exact kind of person he wants, and he is going to do amazing things in your life. All glory be to God our Father. Amen.